Hallelujah. I was listening to the Bible on the way uh, in the church this morning. And you know if you got the little Bible app on your phone, you can download and you can listen to it too. I like to listen to it in my car and I was listening to my text I was going to preach this morning and uh, I just felt like the Lord said, just keep on listening. So I just listened all the way to church and we got to the end of the book of Revelation in my car and, and uh, just like Herman was singing about, I got to see the or I got to hear about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And really, uh, what we're going to be talking about over, over the next few weeks is a tale of two cities. You've got Babylon, which is the city of man, and the new Jerusalem, which is the city of God. And I am glad, I'm so thankful, that I am a citizen of the new Jerusalem. Uh, I, I'm proud to be an American, of course, and I'm not proud of everything America does. But I'm proud to be, uh, 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 I bleed red, white, and blue, but I'm most thankful that I am a citizen of God's uh, eternal city, the New Jerusalem. So let's go to Revelation 17. And I want to, uh, I mentioned this last week, I'll mention it again today. I think that the 17 uh, is probably the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation. And I say that in all humility. I don't say that to discourage you, because God's going to help us to get through it. And I, I have, uh, I've been in this, uh, this one section in my own personal study for months now. So what you're getting is really a uh, concentrated uh, study of what I've been working on for months. And I don't say that to brag. I say it uh, in all honesty because I've, I want to make sure I preach it right. So I've just been really going to great pains to make sure I did. And I, uh, I reached out to several ministries just to, to see if my thinking was right. And uh, I didn't hear back from, from any of them but one. And it was my friend, Dr. David Reagan. You might want to check him out. on. Uh, he's retired now, but he was the founder of Lamb and Lion Ministries. And he's a personal friend of mine. Uh, he's uh, in uh, Texas. And uh, he, he emailed me back and told me, I, you know, uh, I was on the right track with my thinking. And, and he actually sent me a free copy of his book online and everything. And I wanted to share something with you from that book. It's called Wrath and Glory. And uh, he's got uh, ten, ten little things here about how we can understand the book of Revelation. And I, I'd like to share these with you. And I think you'll be, help, be helpful. Because this, this is not, you know, elementary stuff. This is, you've got to put your thinking cap on. Number one, you need to believe that God wants you to understand the book. The first chapter of the book says blessed is the one who reads and hears and keeps the sayings so God wants you to understand it he the book the, the book is called revelation <laughs> or unveiling it's not called veiling it's called unveiling uh, number two and this is important rely on the Holy Spirit to teach you you know I, I'm thankful for godly teachers Bible expositors but the Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher uh, and if you're born again you have an anointing from the Holy One, and He will teach you all things. Number three, remember that even though we're studying symbols, like this is a highly symbolic chapter, the symbols actually point to realities, something literal. So it's not just pie in the sky, just, just idealism. Number four, use first coming prophecies as a guide. Now what do I mean by that, or what does David mean by that? Well, the prophecies of the first coming, they were literally fulfilled. Uh, in other words, when Zechariah predicted that Jesus would come riding in on a donkey, guess what? He came riding in on a donkey. 
when, uh, they, when the prophets predicted that Jesus would die on a cross, guess what? He died on a cross. When they predicted he would be born in Bethlehem, he wasn't born in uh, some other place. He was born in Bethlehem. When Gabriel predicted uh, to, in Daniel's 70th week prophecy when Christ would appear as the Messiah, guess what? He appeared precisely at that time. So that is a guide uh, for us. Uh, number five, whenever possible, accept the plain meaning of Scripture. Now, obviously, today we're going to be looking at a beast that's got seven heads and ten horns, okay? So that tells me that I'm dealing with symbolism, amen? Has any of y'all seen a beast with seven heads and ten horns? If you have, let me know, because I want to stay far, far away from that thing. Uh, I've seen some scary-looking stuff, but this, you know, this makes Sasquatch look like uh, uh, Teddy Ruxpin. Anyway, I don't believe in Sasquatch. That was just a joke. Don't write me any hateful letters. Um, but whenever possible, accept the plain sense of Scripture. Okay? There's a golden rule of interpretation, and that is when the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up with nonsense. And that's what happens so many times. All right, number six, pay attention to the book's table of contents. God gives us that in chapter one. The outline of the book is in Revelation 1.19. The things that you've seen, that's chapter one. The things which are, that's chapter 2 and 3, and the things which shall be hereafter, that's chapters 4 through the end of the book of Revelation. Number 7, be attentive to the time frame. Look at the when. As we're going to see, uh, what we're looking at today is not a chronological. Most of the time, the book of Revelation follows a chronology. you got seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, and we're to understand them that way. But there are five times when the chronology breaks off. If, if it makes sense. There's five times when you have these NCPIs. All right. Become familiar with the Old Testament. Have you found that to be true uh, in your study? That you, you really need to rely on the Old Testament to know what's going on. All right. Number nine. Pay the price. <laughs> I mean, it's taken us how long to get as far as we have. We started in January, didn't we? And, but there's no, there's no way you can just rush through it. God's not, he doesn't do things on a fast track. So pay the price. Number 10, and this is probably the most important, keep your eyes on Jesus. This book is called The Revelation of who? Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of Antichrist. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So those things will serve you well. And I thank Dr. Reagan for, for sharing that with me uh, to share with you. And as always, you know, if you want to copy these things, I'll be glad to send them to you. All right, why don't we pray at this So this is one of those five times in the book of Revelation that we have an NCPI. What does the NCPI stand for, everybody? All right. Now you know why I opted for NCPI. Or lunch break, if you prefer. So uh, the five of them are up there, so, so just be mindful of that. But um, the section that we're looking at today and in subsequent weeks, it's going to go from Revelation 17.1 to 19.6. So that this whole part is one unit, so, so be mindful of that. So let's talk about the great harlot. Is Addison talking over there? Hey, sweet girl. She's excited about studying the book of Revelation. Are you? All right. 
So we see the great harlot, and we know that's exactly what she looks like because she's on Google image search. So, um, Let's go back to verse 1. It says of chapter 17, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls uh, is talking. So this is connected with the seven bowl judgments. And in the seventh bowl judgment, there's a city that's judged. What city is that? Starts with a B, Babylon, that's right. So Babylon is judged, and he's going to show the judgment of the great harlot. Chapter 17 and 18 are going to deal with the judgment of the great harlot. And what you're going to discover is that the judgment of the great harlot, who's Babylon, is going to take place in two phases. Okay? And that's what I've taken a lot of time to study to make sure I'm right on this, and I'm, I'm within 99.9% sure that I am. If I'm wrong, then... Uh, you know, God knows my heart, and, and hopefully you do too by now. And that's why we're not being overly dogmatic about these things, because there's uh, smart people who disagree. But he says, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, when you get to um, verse um, 15 of the same chapter, then you realize what the great waters mean. The waters which you saw are what? People's multitudes, nations, and tongues, plural. So whatever the woman is, she represents something that's widespread. This is global. This is not just Rome or Babylon City or uh, not New York City. You know, people say this is, this is New York City. It's not New York City. This is worldwide. Whatever it is, it's worldwide. And it says that the kings of the earth, those are the people in power, they have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were drunk with the wine of her fornication. So what we see here is a, a marriage of church and state. And history has taught us anything is that dangerous things happen when there's a marriage of church and state because people tend to do the wrong thing when they're in absolute power. Now, let me give you a little pop quiz here. Um, in the Old Testament... God split up the kingdom and the priesthood into two different tribes, okay? You all with me? I'm going to give... Adam, I put a, a microphone here by Adam's pew, and he got out of here in a hurry. Yeah. You may not need to use it, but just be on standby. So, who, what tribe did the kings come from? Anybody? Judah, very good. Now, what about the priesthood? What tribe did that come from? Levi. Levi. Okay. So in the Old Testament, you couldn't be a king and a priest. God deliberately did that. There was a separation, if you will. I don't want to like using the terminology, but a separation of church and state. Okay. So you had the political realm on one hand, the king, and then you had the religious uh, aspect of it on the other hand. So the only exception to that was a guy named Melchizedek who was a king and a priest, and that's another sermon for another time. But he was a, he's a picture of Christ. The, uh, the only time that we can trust a marriage of church and state is when Jesus Christ comes to rule and reign. Okay? So before that time, the church is not supposed to rule on the earth. Okay? Understand this, too. When you're electing, when you're going to vote, you're not voting for a pastor. You're voting for a political leader, okay? A lot of times we, miss, we, we don't understand that. And, uh, but, but keep in mind, 
when, when you're dealing with politics, these people who are being elected, we're not voting on them to be a pastor, okay? We're voting on them to lead us in the right direction. And so what's important when, you, when you're dealing with politics are what are the issues that the person stands for, okay? We, sometimes we get mixed up and we vote against somebody just because we don't like them or we vote somebody just because they're a persuasive speaker or they look presidential or whatever. But, but, the, but the issue is what are their policies, okay? And that's, what, that's where we get in all kinds of trouble. But there's not a marriage of church and state until, and I don't even like that term, but until Jesus comes. Because he's the only one that can handle absolute power absolutely, right? Amen, okay. She's arrayed in outward splendor. Um, now in verse 3, it says, He carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness of chapter 17. Uh, you know, it started out with a beautiful bride in a garden. This, this thing with mankind ends up with a, a harlot in a barren place. That's the depravity of human beings. She was sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy. Blasphemy is any time we try to take the glory away from God and give it to a person or to a religious system or, or anything of that nature. Um, she was sitting on the beast indicating that she's controlling the beast. There is a time in when, when the woman is controlling the beast. The religious is kind of driving the, the political uh, aspect of it. And the beast has seven heads and, uh, and ten horns. Now, we're also told that she's the mother of harlots, right? Just like Satan is the father of lies, this woman is the mother of harlots. So go with me now to uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 10. And when we get to Genesis 10, we discover who this, uh, who, where, the, where harlotry or false religion began. It began in the, uh, in the plain of Shinar. Genesis 10, and this is review, and I'm taking my time here on this. I understand most of you are well aware of, of what's going on. But in Genesis 10, we're in a, a, a genealogy. And Mark, if you would, uh, read verses 6 through 11. Or no, 6 through 12, I'm sorry. Genesis 10, 6 through 12. Okay. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ramah, and Sabticha, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan, and Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalnah, in the land of Shinar, out of the land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city of Rehoboth, and Calah, and resin between Nineveh and Calah, 
the same is as a great city. All right, so the first mention of a king in the Bible is Nimrod. And his kingdom started in the plain of Shinar, which is ancient uh, Babylon. Now, when you see the Tower of Babel, when you see Babel in Hebrew, it's the same word as Babylon. So we're talking about the same place. So now let's go to chapter 11. And uh, Mark, if you will read verses 1 through 8. Or 9, verse 1 through 9. Chapter 11, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go, to let us build up a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So they were wanting to build a tower to heaven, the gate of the gods is what Babel actually, uh, the etymology of it means gate of the gods, but it came to mean uh, confusion because God confounded that. Now from this area, you get uh, the birth of the mother-son cult. This is the first instance, uh, if you will, of the marriage of church and state because Nimrod, he was the political leader, he was the king, he had a wife and his wife was named Semiramis. And she was a high priestess of the Babylonian religion. Now, according to the Babylonian myth, uh, Semiramis got pregnant by a sunbeam. And she uh, had a virgin birth. And she gave birth to a son named Tammuz. And Tammuz was killed by a wild animal. And she wept and fasted for 40 days. And apparently, according to the myth, uh, Tammuz came back to life. And, and that religious system of the mother and the child scattered from Babylon all over the world. Okay? And I've got a chart up here showing the various iterations of that, of that uh, entity. But it's the mother and son. And so it's bigger than Roman Catholicism, but the Catholic Church is part of it. It's not all of it, right, because it's worldwide, but it's, it's, it's part of it. Mark, would you read that off the board there? This is from Dr. Henry Morris. He's gone on to be with the Lord, and he's a, uh, he was one of the greatest creation research uh, figures in, in, uh, in modern times. From Dr. Henry Morris. To say that the harlot is either Rome or the Roman Catholic Church is to grossly underestimate the age-long global impact of this great mystery. 
Babylon the Great. Babylon is the mother of all harlots and abominations of the earth. From her have come ancient paganism, Chinese Confucianism, Asian Buddhism, Indian Hinduism, Shamanism, Taoism, Shintoism, Animism, Astrology, Witchcraft, Spiritism, Sikhism, and all the world's vast complex of God's many and Lord's many. 1 Corinthians 8.5 Of more direct concern in 20th century, America is the direct descent of modern scientism and evolutionary humanism from this ancient mother of harlots. Okay, so it all started in Babel. You know, all this stuff has a common ancestor. That's why she's the mother of harlots. It's, it's paganism uh, at the core. All right. And, and uh, Satan seizes upon man's... Uh, man was created to worship. Go with me to Romans chapter 1, if you will, if you can find that. Romans 1. God created man to worship. And what happens is if we don't worship God as Lord and Creator, we will worship stuff or people or nature, this pantheism. I think that'll be the predominant religion. And I really believe this, that um, that the predominant religion uh, of the tribulation period, it will be this, this idea that the earth uh, worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. When did God create the sun and the, the moon? Does anybody remember what day of creation? Close. Fourth day. There's a reason, I think, that God didn't create the sun and the moon until the fourth day. When was there light? First day. So God was showing that he's the light of the world. Don't worship these things. Where did I tell you to turn? <laughs> Romans 1. <clears throat> I guess I should turn there. Um, and, and during the tribulation period, particularly, if you were noticing during the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments and the bowl judgments that God is taking aim at the stars, they're not sh shining, they're falling from heaven. The sun is being darkened. The moon is being darkened. The trees are burning up. That, did you notice all these natural elements that God is judging? And I believe it's because the world is worshiping these things, the water, the ocean. And God's saying, look, I am the creator of these things. You need to worship me. All right, uh, Romans 1. <clears throat> Mark, if you would read, um, we're not going to do the whole thing, but 20 through, excuse me, yeah, 20 through 25, 20 through 25, Romans 1, 20 through 25. All right, I'll get you a spare. Romans 1, 20 through 25. Mm -hmm. 
For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were, were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. So that's what Babylon is all about, is worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. That's what the whole idea is, is all about. And it's no accident, dear friend, that they refer to the, uh, the earth and nature in feminine terms, Mother Earth, Mother Nature. That, that stuff is not, it's not by accident. It's by design. Okay? It's Satan wants us to put our, our attention and our worship in this mother-son cult that started back in the plain of Shinar. Okay? And you see how subtly it's crept into our... And, and we say things like that without even thinking, don't we? Mother Nature. Every forecaster on the Weather Channel talks about Mother Nature, right? There is no Mother Nature. There's God who's the creator of the universe, okay? And He's Lord of, over heaven and earth. All right, let's go back to Revelation 17. So now we see in verse 6 that the woman is drunk. Now, in verse 2, we read that the kings of the earth and all of the people dwelling on the earth are drunk off of her intoxication. You see that? All of the nations and the kings are drunk with what she's serving up. But now, John sees the woman and she's drunk. But she's not drunk on wine. What is she drunk with? The blood of the saints. What a terrible image there. Isn't it amazing how the tolerant become intolerant when you disagree with them? It's amazing. I'm sure the woman is, is portraying herself as the picture of tolerance and love and acceptance and inclusion or whatever buzzword is popular for the day. But the moment you say Jesus is the only way, the fangs come out. Okay? And she's drunk with the blood of the saints. Now this would have been particularly offensive to John because they were prohibited to drink blood, which I don't know of anybody that should be drinking blood anyway, Jew or Gentile. But they were specifically prohibited from drinking blood. Uh, I don't know this firsthand, but I've heard that in satanic rituals, they drink blood, you know. And that's in direct violation of God because God says life is in the blood. Now, it could be that during the tribulation period that these people are literally drinking blood. I don't know. Um, but I'm just saying she's drunk with the blood. Of the saints, and that tells us that's a clue to us as to who's killing the Christians in the first half of the tribulation period. Now, in the second half of the tribulation period, who is the one that's wearing out the saints and killing them? Anybody? Oh, I'm so disappointed. We've been at this for nine months now. It's the beast, the Antichrist. At the midpoint of the tribulation period, he is enforcing this mark of the beast system, him and the false prophet, and anybody that doesn't worship the, the image of the beast, what happens? 
He kills them, right? So in the second half of the tribulation period, the beast and the false prophet are the ones killing all the Christians. But in the first half of the tribulation period, and I've got this scripture up here on the board. Mark, if you would read that, Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. Now this is the fifth seal, which is part of the very first part of the tribulation period. Okay, early part. Revelation 6, 9 and 10. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? What they're going to find out is their prayer is about to be answered because God's getting ready to avenge them. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. And it says, when I saw her, Revelation 17, 6, he says, I marveled. Now, I think the King James says, with great admiration. But that's not really the, the modern meaning of that. It means he's, he's amazed. Now, he knows all about pagan Rome, right? That's the reason he's on Patmos, uh, is because he's an enemy of the state. But I think what amazes him is that religious Rome. See, at this time, Rome was Christian. I mean, the church was, was flourishing in Rome. But he sees the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, and he's amazed. All right. So the angel's going to say to him now, why do you marvel? Verse 7. I will tell you the what? The mystery. Now, the mystery is not just about the woman, is it? The mystery of the woman and the beast. So this mystery here is, is how are the woman and the beast related, what is their relationship, and how will it ultimately bring about the destruction of Babylon? Okay? So what you're going to find in an ironic twist is when you get to the end of chapter 17, and it says verse 16, and we'll get to that next week. We won't get to that today. Everybody says, praise God. But the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and destroy her. I'm paraphrasing there. So something's going to happen in their relationship that's going to make them turn on the harlot. But I'll, I'll tease you with that. But John has already seen the beast, hasn't he? He's already seen him. In chapter 12, we saw the dragon. Mark, you want to read that? Revelation 12, 3. Revelation 12, 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven, horn, seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. All right, so this is a panoramic view of Satan's activity on the earth from the, since the beginning of time. Um, he's got seven heads, ten horns, and the crowns are upon the heads. But then we get to chapter 13, and John sees a beast coming out of the sea. Would you read that, Mark? Revelation 13, 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. All right. Well, we'll talk about this next week. We're not going to tackle the, 
seven heads and ten horns today. But we'll talk. So put your thinking caps on next week because we're going to need it. I said we, not you. We're going to need it. Okay. Now, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and will go to perdition or destruction. So this describes four phases of his career. It can get confusing. By the way, this is kind of a parody of God because Jesus Christ is the one who is and was and is to come, right? Jesus said, Behold, I I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So this is a counterfeit of Christ. So the first thing we see is that he was. That's his first, that's his his reign as, as ruler. He's not. That means he's killed by a mortal wound. He's going to ascend from the abyss. He's going to have a miraculous recovery. And he's going ultimately to perdition. So God's telling us over and over again, this guy, he's not going to win. He's going to be destroyed. So that's the four stages of his career. Now there's particular emphasis on this of his death and miraculous recovery. This is the... This is the, uh, the trump card. Uh, this is the, the silver bullet for Satan. Okay? Is he's going to seize upon this counterfeit resurrection. Now, now, I believe he's really coming back from the dead. Some commentators don't believe it. But the same words that are used for Christ's resurrection are used for this. Uh, and I'll, you know, if you want to discuss that further, we can. But remember, in the myth, there's a virgin who, who has a son who dies and rises again. So here we're going to see this. His deadly wound is healed. Now in chapter 13, when we're first introduced to this beast, we are told not once, not twice, but three times that the guy's going to die and come back to life. Mark, if you would be so kind as to read those references from Revelation 13. Revelation 13, 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Revelation thirteen twelve, And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Revelation thirteen fourteen, And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. All right, do you think God's trying to tell us something? Okay, I think it's interesting too that he's killed with a sword. Is this going to be a Muslim that kills him? That's how they do things over there. I don't know. The next thing we find out is that he's going to ascend out of the bottomless pit. We already looked at that uh, too. This is the abyss. The fifth trumpet, there was locusts that came up out of the abyss. And those were some bad creatures, remember? They were tormenting people and people were praying to die. And uh, they had a king over them. His name was Apollyon, which means destruction, or Abaddon in Hebrew. Revelation eleven seven. Mark, would you read that? Revelation eleven seven, 7. 
And when they shall have finished their testimony, the two witnesses, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit, shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. Okay, that was my, that was my in, uh, in insertion there, the two witnesses um, that he was reading. That's at the midpoint of the tribulation period, evidently. That, that's, that's what causes his career to skyrocket. Because up until this time, the two witnesses are immortal, Remember? They've got fire. They can call fire from heaven. Nobody can touch them. But this guy, when he comes out of the abyss, he's able to kill them. And that's how he's able to garner so much support uh, is because of his miraculous recovery and satanic power. Okay. Um, Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3. Also speaking of the abyss. Would you read? Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So this is the ultimate destiny of Satan. Well, not ultimate, but he's going to be there for a thousand years. And he doesn't want to go there. Okay, that's why he's so angry. We're also told that he's going to go to perdition. And I've got some scriptures here. And, and uh, Mark, would you read Daniel seven eleven? Daniel seven eleven. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So Daniel sees the Antichrist or the beast being thrown into the lake of fire. He sees that. All right, how about uh, Revelation 19, verse 20? Revelation 19, verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. These are the only two, by the way, wicked people, only two humans who are not going to go to the white throne judgment. They're going to just skip that part and go right to the lake of fire. That's, that's interesting. All right, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The son of perdition. The only other person that's called that in the Bible, in John seventeen twelve, is Judas Iscariot. Now, something unique about Judas, the Bible says that when Judas was getting ready to betray Jesus Christ, that somebody entered into him. You remember who it was? Satan himself entered into Judas. And it could be that Satan is going to possess the Antichrist because the same terms are used uh, for that. All right, Revelation 17. And we've got the earth dwellers again, don't we? I think this is the last mention of the earth dwellers. Um, it says that those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life. Now earlier, John was marveling. Remember, he saw the, uh, 
he saw the woman that was drunk, and it says he was, he was marveling. But these people, the earth dwellers, they're going to marvel at the beast. And the, the reason they're going to marvel at him is because of his miraculous recovery from the deadly wound. All right, Mark, would you read that uh, Revelation 13, 8? Revelation 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All right, this is a doozy. This is a doozy. Uh, and it might mess with your theology. It doesn't say here that their names were blotted out. It doesn't say that. It, say, it says that their names were not written uh, from the foundation of the world. Now, in this verse, you see the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, but also their names are not in there. Okay? Both are true. But when you get back to Revelation 17, and we're almost done here, so stick with me just a few more minutes. When you get back to Revelation 17 and verse 8, it says that their names were not written from when? Well, I'm not an English major. Some of you may be. But even in the Greek, it means that they were never written in. And that's, that's tough for some to swallow. Okay? I don't fully understand it. But their names weren't written in and blotted out. Their names were never written in the book of life. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about the book of life. We're, we're going to end on some positive notes here, okay? This has been really negative, but we're going to end on a positive note here. In Luke's gospel, and I've got it up on the board here, in chapter 10, you've got 70 disciples who go out casting out demons. And they come back and they're really happy that the demons are, are obeying them. And Jesus said, don't get excited about that, guys. Mark, would you read Luke uh, 10, 20? Luke 10, verse 20. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Oh, wow. Let's do a little something here. Bear with me just, just, just a little bit longer, okay? I know it's been a long week. We're weary. We're tired. Mark's had a lot of stuff to read this morning. I'm, I didn't plan it that way, but you're doing a great job. Thank you, sir. Jesus says we are to rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I'm going to ask you this morning. Is your name written in heaven in the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, Jesus said if your name is written in heaven, you ought to rejoice. Okay? So on the count of three, you don't have to participate. Addison's going to participate with me. She's already ready. <laughs> On the count of three, I want us to say praise the Lord, okay? Because our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So praise the Lord on the count of three and say it like you mean it, okay? Otherwise, I might shame you in a future sermon. One, two, three. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Jesus told us we are we're to praise. In Philippians 4, 3, Paul talks about Christians who are, whose names are in the Book of Life. Okay. Unbelievers are not written in the book of life, as far as I can tell. There is this theory that everybody's name is written in the book of life, and then when they die, if they don't receive Christ, their name is blotted out. That's a common thought process. 
but I don't think it's a biblical concept. If Jesus tells me to rejoice because my name's written in heaven, that means I'm special, right? If everybody's name's written in heaven, I don't need to rejoice, right? Because that's just ho-hum. Everybody's name's in there, so what? But Jesus said, I'm going to rejoice because my name's written in there. Now, these folks, for whatever reason, their names are not written in there from the foundation of the world. And only God knows why. I don't. Here's where we come to an issue of the sovereignty of God and salvation. And this is one of these things where you can choose to ignore it or you can choose to deny it. You can argue about it. Uh, people ask me all the time, is predestination true or is uh, uh, free will true? And I say yes. They're both true in some respect. I don't claim to understand it. They seem to be parallel truths okay, that would never intersect. But somehow in the economy of God... They do. And when you get to Romans 8, it becomes very clear. Romans 8, if you're ever having a bad day, you ever have a bad day, guys? Maybe you're having one right now. I, I, tend to believe, I would tend to agree that you are because you, you seem very non-responsive to me. But in Revel, I'm, I'm teasing you. It's, it's dark outside, you know. It's been a long week. If you're having a bad day, open up Romans 8, and especially the latter part of the chapter, and I promise you, it'll bless your socks off if you're a believer in Christ. I want you to pay special attention to the phrase also, or the word also. Also, also. Mark, would you read Romans 8, 29 and 30? Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. And whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. And I say to that, hallelujah. There's five things here. He says, number one, whom he foreknew. When's the time frame here? I'm going to suggest before the foundation of the world. You with me? Those whom he foreknew, he also, you see the word also? So the ones that he foreknew, he also predestinated. You say, is predestination in the Bible? Yeah, it is. If you'll look, it's in there. He predestinated. There's a particular thing that you're predestinated to. It's to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see that? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So that's phase two. Foreknowledge, number one. Number two, predestination. Number three, he says, those whom he predestinated, them he also. You see that? So that means everybody that experiences phase one is going to experience phase two. Are you with me? So the ones who experience phase two are also going to be called. That's where the preaching of the gospel comes in. That's why we're meeting here today is because I don't know who the elect are and you don't know who the elect are, but God does. And the way God brings the elect into the fold is through the preaching of the gospel. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach without, uh, unless they be sent? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So this is where we come into the equation. The preacher or the Christian who's witnessing to, the, uh, to someone, that's when the call comes. And by the way, I can't call anybody. Only God can. You know? I wish I could call everybody in this room, but I can't. But God can. And I believe he does call. The Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. But he calls, and those whom he called, them he also. Do you see that? So if you experience step one, foreknowledge, 
Then number two, you're also going to be predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. If you're predestined, number three, you're going to be called. God's going to call you. How's he going to do it? Through the preaching of the gospel. You with me? Number four, if he calls you, he's also going to justify you. So that's why you don't have to worry about anybody falling through the cracks. I remember one time I felt like God was wanting me to witness to somebody in a, in a restaurant, and I didn't do it. And, and for days and days and days, I thought, oh, man, what if this person goes to hell? And I, God's much bigger than that. <laughs> He's, and I'm not saying you shouldn't witness, but I'm saying don't get under condemnation over something you have no control over. God's going to call the ones that, that he's predestined, and he's going to justify those who he calls. What, when does that happen? It happens the moment you believe. That's where we come in, okay? We're justified. You say, where's the free will part of it? This is it. You're justified when you believe. Abraham, the Bible says, he believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That's the first... Uh, well, maybe not the first, but one of the most vivid pictures of justification by faith is Abraham. He simply believed God, okay? He simply believed God. Then there's one other step. Praise God. Now, if you're saved here this morning, this ought to bless your socks off. If you're saved, God predestined, He foreknew you. He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Now, why is that a big deal? Because I'm worried about tomorrow sometimes. How about you? But see, God's got my yesterday's taken care of, and he's got my tomorrow's taken care of. Okay? God didn't just start thinking about me today. God's had plans for me since before I was born. Oh, I could really go on a tangent here, but I won't. God's, God knew I would be, he knew you would be here at this point in this time sitting in this sanctuary on this very day in this very town of Peachland, North Carolina. He knew it and he ordained it. Now, the fifth step, it says those whom he justified, that's people who have believed and trusted in Christ, them he also glorified. Stop the presses. Number five has not yet happened for any of us yet, experientially. Amen. Has anybody here been glorified? Do tell. I've met some who thought they were. But as of yet, we're not glorified. Why? Because I still take ibuprofen in the morning. Right? And I still take uh, peps at AC at night. I'm not glorified. <laughs> that's right. After you've been resurrected, right, that's when you're glorified. Okay? So, so what Paul is getting at here is if you're truly saved, in the mind of Christ, you're already glorified. Or I can say it this way, you're eternally secure in Christ. <laughs> Man, what a great deal. Five of those things. And God says if you experience step one, you're going to experience all five. So that means even though I look very far away from glorification, God said one day it's going to happen. And we all need a T-shirt, don't we, that says uh, 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 W-I-P. I had to say that carefully. <laughs> Work in progress. Work in progress. I'm under construction. I ought to wear an orange vest every day, an orange hat, you know, because I'm under construction. You are too. Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, according as he, who's the he? God, hath chosen us in him. Who's the him? Christ Jesus. When? 
before the foundation of the world. See, you might have got saved in 1970, but God ordained you to be saved before he even put Adam and Eve in the garden. That's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay? That's the end goal, is, is that we're going to be glorified. And, and he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by who? Jesus Christ. How do I know I'm one of the elect? If I trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Wow. Last slide. Oh, yeah. We're all excited about that, aren't we? Some of you smiled for the first time this morning. You say, well, Henry, how can I know? How can I know if I'm one of the elect? People have that, you know, they worry about this. How do I know if I'm one of the elect? How do I know if I'm chosen? Here is a simple litmus test. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you trust Him as your Lord and Savior? If you are, you are one of the elect. If you are, you are one of the chosen. If you are, you are one of those whom He has predestined. He's called, He's justified, and ultimately, He's going to glorify you. These things have I written unto you, He says in 1 John 5, 13, that believe on the name of the Son of God. Is that you? He says, if that's you, you may know, not think, not guess, not speculate. You may know that you have what? Eternal life. Ionius Zoe in the Greek. Unto the ages and ages and ages. Isn't that glorious truth? And that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Not join the church, not get baptized, not go through a program, not sell everything you have and give to the poor. Simply trust Christ. Well, who is the invitation open to, Henry? Well, you know, God answers that at the end of the book. Isn't that great? All the answers are in the back of the book. Revelation 22, verse 17, and it says that the Spirit of God and the bride. Who's that? That's us. <laughs> Say, come. God didn't say sit here and agonize over whether or not you're one of the chosen, whether you're one of the elect. He says, if you want to be saved, come. That has been God's invitation since the very beginning. Come. Come. I can hear Billy Graham say, won't you come? Won't you come? And let him that heareth say, come. Can you hear him? Can you hear the Holy Spirit this morning? And let him who's thirsty Come, are you thirsty? God will never turn a sinner away that wants to be saved. That's why we don't have to stress about all this predestination. You know, people try to defend the integrity of God. Here's the thing. God will not deny anybody that wants to be saved. That, I mean, that's the truth of the gospel. Whosoever will, whosoever will, whosoever will, that's everybody, right? Anybody that wants to, let him take the water of life Freely. What does that mean? It means I don't have to do anything on my own. E even if I had all the money in the world, even if I volunteered and sacrificed every day of my life from here to the day I die, I can't purchase this salvation. This salvation was purchased by the blood of Jesus. And I can come without price. Oh, it cost him everything. The Bible says that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life for you and for me. He was born of a virgin, not like Tammuz. Tammuz was not born of a virgin. That's a myth. Jesus Christ was literally born of a virgin. 
Jesus Christ is the only one who ever lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. And God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He died on the cross. He was laid in the tomb. He rose again the third day. And he's alive forevermore. He's now at the right hand of the Father. And he's been doing the same thing that he's been doing the last 2,000 some odd years. He has been sending his Holy Spirit to call men and women to repentance in Jesus Christ. Would you stand? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I beg of you, I plead with you today, time is running out. But the door is still open, praise God. Thank you, Jesus, that the window of opportunity is still there. And if you want that, if you want that in your heart, God will satisfy that thirst. Okay? The world is drunk with what Babylon has. The woman is drunk with the blood of the saints. But God says, if you're thirsty, come drink of the water I've got for you. And this water that I've got for you, it'll quench your thirst to where you'll never thirst again. It'll satisfy your soul. You don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please come. If you're a believer here who's discouraged, depressed, uh, needing a fresh touch from God, this altar is open. The Savior's waiting. Would you come?